morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can get over to uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, starting verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. And they stood up in the place and read the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of a day. For another quarter of it, it was made confession and worship the Lord, their God. On the stairs, the Levites stood. They stood Jeshua, Rani, Kedmel, lots of men. And they said, stand up and bless the Lord, your God. From everlasting to everlasting, blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of her. The Chaldeans. Jump down all the way to verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings and our princes and our priests and our prophets and our fathers and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Let's pray one more time. Lord, guide this morning. Lord, empower us by your spirit. Lead us by your word. And help us to be your people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, when my daughter, uh, Juliet, was two or three years old, uh, we started setting some rules for her as a child. We said, uh, we want you to only use crowns and markers within uh, the, lit, the, the, um, the kitchen, on the kitchen table. We don't want you to bring them to the rest of the house. And the reason for that was simple. We knew that she would color on everything. And so she, she I remember one day um, in, in the house that we were in College Station, I actually, I had an office and, and I remember walking by and I just see the curtains behind my desk in front of the window kind of shaking a little bit. And I'm like, that's weird. And I kind of walk by again, I just see the curtain shaking. And, and so I walk over and I open up the curtains and I see my two-year-old daughter, two to three-year-olds, and just in her diaper with two markers in hand. She has green all over her face. She has green all over her body. And there is marker all over the wall. And I look at her and I said, Juliet, did you color all over the wall? She looks at me, straight-faced. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. And I'm like, baby, you have it everywhere and all right here. And she looks at me. Mm-mm. And, and in that moment, I, I was confronted with the reality. I think all of us are confronted with the reality. When you're caught 
in a mistake, when you're caught in sin, when you have been disobedient, what, what, does, what is your natural response? What do you say? Do you say, yeah, it was me, or do you say, no, nah, it, wasn't, it wasn't me? And even when you're caught green-handed, do you, do you still just kind of look past and try to push past that, or are you actually willing to fess up to the mistakes that you have made? And, and it's funny, I was reading um, an article on this, an NPR interview um, from 2013, and uh, The title of the article said this, Why Companies and CEOs Rarely Admit Wrongdoings. They talk about an event that happened by J.P. Morgan Chase. It says, we will have to pay more than $900 million in fines for the way it handled the London whale trade scandal. Last year, they lost almost $6 billion and then concealed it for a while. And so the the people of Edgeford are like, why? They're having to pay $900 million in fines. They lost $6 billion. Why are they trying to conceal that? That seems like a, that's a, that's a big wall to cover up, right? $600 million, or $6 billion. And so they, an interview by uh, Catherine Phillips, who's a professor of leadership and ethics at Columbia University, she says this, why don't CEOs actually um, admit wrongdoing? She, goes, she says, my answer is more cynical. The lawyers won't let them. She says, one of the main reasons companies like J.P. Morgan don't admit uh, to wrongdoing is because uh, that will make them open to crushing liabilities and from plaintiff's lawyers. But then Philip says, there's probably another reason too. So one may be liability. Another issue is this. Uh, one of the most basic kinds of psychological need of humans is to save face and to not look stupid and to not look like they don't know what they're doing. And people who are in powerful positions and in charge often feel the pressure to do so even more. Why don't we confess our mistakes? Is because we want to save face. We want to look good on the outside. We want to make, put on a show that, hey, we have it all together. Um, another article described it this way. It's called reputation management. This pressure to have this perfectionistic mentality, to, to make, have all the right answers. But we long for honesty. More than perfection, more than the right face, we want people to be honest, to reveal what's actually going on. And, 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 here's, and here's the challenge with this. Oftentimes in life, we're not willing to, to, to be honest because at the end of the day, and I think we're going to see this in the nation of Israel in this section, we actually don't trust in God's faithfulness. We don't believe that God is faithful to care for us if we admit our faults and receive his forgiveness. And so in this section of scripture, there's three movements I want to, I want to lead us to, and we're going to spend some time praying at the end of it. The first is this, to rightly respond to God, we must first recognize who God is. Secondly, recognize who we are, and thirdly, reach out with open hands. How do we respond rightly to God? We recognize who he is, we recognize who we are, and we reach out with open hands. We're studying the book of Nehemiah, and at this moment in the book of Nehemiah, they've completed the wall. 
In 52 days, they rebuilt the wall, but now he's in the process of rebuilding a people. And last week, we looked at uh, the word of God being the center point that the people of God are built around. We are built on the word of God. We believe that God's word is living and active and, and changes us from the inside out. So we believe in the word of God. But, but more than that, what's needed within the people is not merely just to hear the word of God, but to have a, a right response to the word of God. And so the people were listening to the word of God being read over them over this period of time. They were celebrating this moment. But the more that they are reading, the more that they are convicted. And last week we said, okay, let's let's stop at a moment and let's celebrate that we're under the word of God. But then you have a second moment here in chapter 9 when the people publicly repent in front of God for their sin. And the, the way that they start this repentance process is really interesting. They don't start by saying, hey, here's all the things that we've done wrong. They start by saying, let's recognize who God is. Let's look at his character and look at his work. In order to rightly respond to God, you first have to recognize who God is. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when he was 17 years old, he was preaching at his his church in London, and he writes this. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, who can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, nature, and person and work of God and the existence of of the great God in whom is called Father. There is something exceedingly improving of the mind in a contemplation of the divinity, of the divinity. He says, no subject of contemplation will more humble the mind than the thoughts about God. What you think about God, says A.W. Tozer, is the most important thing about you. And here's what Nehemiah is showing at the beginning of this section. God is bigger than you think. And rightly seeing God means you rightly understand how big God is. In verse 5, the people, the, the Levites, come before all of the people and they say, I want you to stand up. And I want you to stand and I want you to bless the Lord, verse 5. Because from everlasting to everlasting, we will bless his glorious name. And they use that phrase, from everlasting to everlasting. Another way it's described in the Bible is God is like from alpha to omega, from the first letter of the alphabet to the last letter of the alphabet, from the beginning to the end. God is everlasting. God is huge. The Milky Way galaxy is enormous, and that's just our little galaxy. It's 52,850 light years across. 52,850 light years across. So let's think about that for a moment. If you wanted to get in a spaceship and go from one side of the Milky Way galaxy to the other, it would take you 52,850 years traveling at the speed of light to get from one end to the other. That's far you wouldn't make it in your lifetime. (laughs) And the psalm says that God measures the, the, the stars of the heavens with the span of his hand. He says, what seems big to you is actually small to us. And people that actually get into outer space and look down, they have moments. It's, they literally call it the overview effect. Astronaut John Glenn said this, When he was in space looking down at earth, he says, to look out at this kind of creation out here and not believe in God's impossible. 
British philosopher uh, Dr. Anthony Flusset was the leading spokesman for atheism. And he was actively involved in, de in debate after debate. However, scientific discoveries within the last 30 years brought him to the conclusion that he could no longer avoid. And he says, a superintelligence is the only good explanation for the origin of life and the complexity of nature. When you take a moment and you contemplate the bigness of creation, it shouldn't lead us to think about the significance of us. It's meant to highlight the significance of God. And the challenge is not everyone sees that. When you contemplate the bigness of creation, not everyone thinks that, that there must be a creator. There's different viewpoints in that. One of those is a man named Richard Feynman, and he says this, it doesn't seem to me that this, fantastically, that this is a fantastically marvelous universe, this tremendous range of time and space and different kinds of animals and all the different planets, that all of these atoms with all of their motions and so on, all this complicated thing can merely be a stage so that God can watch human beings struggle for good and evil, which is the view that religion has. That stage is too big for that drama. See what he's saying? He's saying it's a waste of space. He's saying space is too big for this whole thing to be about, this little battle between good and evil. But, but Feynman's missing the purpose of creation. The reason space is so big, the reason creation is so vast is not to spotlight us here on earth. It's to spotlight God. The significance, the, the, the breadth of, of, of creation the breadth of space, all of the emptiness, all of the traveling is not so that we feel big. It's so that we feel in right size in relationship to God. Psalm 19 says it this way. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. They're not telling of the significance of man. Do you ever sit in a moment and just look at the vastness of creation? My kids came back um, home uh, with a song um, when they went back to school, um, and it was a, a take on the, the stars at Texas, uh, whatever the, anyway, they said this. The stars at night are big and bright because there's no power in Texas. That's uh, the song uh, that, they, that they sang, and, and I know for many of us that hits too close to home, too soon, but uh, they came back singing that song, and I was like, oh my gosh, and it's true. When the lights go out and you can get into spaces where you are not um, inundated with light pollution and you can see the heavens, you don't think I'm big. You think, wow, there's something big out there. And the stage of the story is not to highlight, highlight our significance, it's to highlight God's. And the people of God throughout the nation of Israel, when they start the process of repentance when they start the process of admitting where we are wrong, what they first do is they come to God. And they say, God, you are much bigger than I can fathom. Your ways are higher than my ways. As high as the heavens are higher than the earth are your ways bigger than my ways. And as you read through this chapter, we're not gonna it's, it's, a, it's a longer chapter, so we're not gonna read every verse, but here's some some qualities that you discover about God through this text. One of them is that God is a giver. Over and over and over again through this passage, you see that God, God gave Israel. He gave Israel um, 
leadership. He, he, he made them. He gave them Moses and leadership to lead them out of slavery. He's a giver. He gives and gives and gives. God is not one who sits in heaven and hopes we figure it out. He's one that blesses us over and over and over again. And God is a promise keeper. Verse 31 says, Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not make it into your people, for you are gracious and merciful. You are a God who is awesome and keeps his covenant. Verse 32. Your God is a promise-keeping God. So the starting point of repentance is first to us actually to look and see what is God like? Who is he? And one of my challenges, one of my encouragements to you is to actually take some time this week, spend some time thinking about who God is and what he is like in the world. What is God like? But not only first recognizing who God is, secondly, to recognize who we are. And who we are are people that are caught in a cycle. And the cycle that we are caught in is is what the Bible describes as a cycle of sin. And you see this play out in the section, verses 7 through 31. You see this cycle of sin play out. When you see that God blesses, that people rebel, that God brings discipline, people repent, then God blesses, and then they rebel, and then he brings discipline, then they repent, and then they God's blessing comes, and then they rebel, and then he disciplines, and the people repent. And you see that cycle play over and over and over again all throughout your Bible. It begins in verse 7. He says this, You are the Lord, the God, who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made him the covenant to give his offspring to the land of the Canaanites. The first part he says is this. There was an Abrahamic covenant. And Abraham is the OJ, the original Jew, right? And he was the, he was the first Jewish person. And they started the whole Jewish nation from this man. And he brought Abraham in and he says, Abraham, I want you to look at the stars of the heavens. Your descendants will be like them. Look at the sands and see. Try to count them if you can. And he's like, one, two, three. You can't even count. Stop. I will make you a blessing. I will bless you and you will, through you, bless the world. And he gives him the Abrahamic covenant. I will give you land, this real estate. I will give you a seed, someone coming from you. And through you, the whole world will be blessed. And he goes on to the Mosaic Covenant. Verse 9. He says, You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry in the sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and his servants. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself that day. And you divided the sea before them and you went in the midst of the sea and the pursuers and their deaths and you led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven and gave them the right rules and true laws and good statutes and you gave them bread from heaven to, to um, satisfy their hunger and brought water out of the rock to give it to them. He says, you have given and given and given. And not only do we have the Abrahamic covenant, a promise that a blessed seed would come, that through you the world would be blessed. We also have the Mosaic covenant. God came down and literally gave him the rules to live by. 
He says, if you follow me, I will bless you. And if you read through your Bible, you can get to the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy 28 through 30 talks about the cursings and the blessings. That if you, if you obey me, you will be blessed. But if you do not obey me, judgment will come upon you. I will discipline you as a people. And you see that promise given to the nation. You are my people. And I'm going to treat you like a loving dad. I will bless you. But if you rebel against me, I will discipline you. And you see that happen in this section. Verse 18, you gave them the word, but verse 18, but they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is our God who brought us out of Egypt. They said, instead of worshiping God, you worshiped something that you made. If you're not familiar with the story, what ended up happening is Moses was on Mount Sinai for a couple months, getting the law of God. And while the people are down waiting for Moses to return, even though God had parted the Red Sea, even though God had provided for them along the way, they're like, what are we gonna do? There's, we, don't, we need a God. I don't know what we're gonna do. And then Aaron says, well, the people gave me gold. I threw it in the fire and out popped a golden calf. And Moses is like, are you crazy? But we're so like that. Instead of receiving the blessing of God and worshiping God, so many of us turn and start making our own things with it. And there's because there's a sin within us, and the sin is this. When we take the blessings of God and make the mistake of assuming that we're blessed because of some self-sufficiency in us, we make the mistake of assuming that we're in the right and that's why we've received the blessings of God. And so we start doing our own thing, trying to live our own life, trying to make our own way. And what happens is every single time we start drifting deeper into sin and making greater mistakes. All sin comes from the same place. When it says, I think I know better than God. I think I'm in control of my life. I think I know what's best. All sin starts from the same place. And God is a good God. God is a loving dad. And God won't let us continue to run into sin. He's gonna bring discipline to us. Hebrews says it this way. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of our Lord. Do not be weary for his um, reproval. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For it's for discipline that you endure. And God is treating you as a son. To the nation, he's saying, I'm not gonna let you stray too far. I want to save you. I want you to be in my people that follow me. And I don't want you to keep repeating the same cycle of sin. But let's just be honest. Often in life, we take the blessings of God and we start living our own way. And then God brings discipline into our lives. And there's two ways that God brings discipline into the life of a Christian. One is through active discipline and one is through passive discipline. 
Romans 1 describes the passive discipline of God. It says that, that, that he gave them over to their sins. So one way that God disciplines us is he allows the consequences of our decisions to fully play out. Um, the way I would describe it is this. I had a friend of mine who was trying to teach their child to not touch a hot stove. And so what did the parent do, a good parent? They put it on a little bit of low heat. So when the kid reached up to touch the stove, they got a little bit of burn, but not like a crazy burn, like a little bit of a, ow, pulled it out. And then the, the parent was right there. Hey, don't do that. Like, that's what I'm telling you. Don't touch the hot stove. And that's, that's a way that allowed the, the child to suffer the consequences of their own actions. But there's other times when God brings specific discipline on people's lives. And that's what we see in the nation of Israel. As they continued to rebel and rebel against God, he would bless them. He gave them kingdoms, verse 22. He gave them people. He gave them children, verse 23. Verse 24, he gave them victory. And verse 25, he gave them prosperity. But they continued to rebel against him. Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had warned them to return and come back. And they committed great blasphemies. And so what did God do? You gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. In the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard from heaven and according to your great mercy, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. See what God does? All the time in our life, he allows discipline to come into our lives so that we'll return to him. He brings discipline not because he wants to hurt us, but because he wants us to return to him. And the the purpose of the discipline is so that we would know our loving father who is ready to scoop us up. When I was a kid, we went on a beach trip to Port Aransas, and my family stayed in these beach condos uh, in that area. And, And my parents were kind of all packing up the stuff and loading up to go back to the condo, and, and I decided I wanted to stay there by the beach. And so I'm out there playing, and it's getting darker, and I'm playing and playing and playing, just not focused on anything else. And then I, uh, I look back, and my family is gone, and I, I have completely lost where I am. And I look back, and I start walking to the condos. Now, if you've ever seen condos in an area like that, you know they all look alike, like you can't distinguish anything. And I'm like walking around going, I don't, where am I? And, and I see these kids on a porch kind of playing cards or something. And I walk by them and I'm still looking and I walk back over to them and I walk by them and, and I hear them going, I think that kid's lost. And I'm like, and at that moment, it just hit me. And I just start crying. I'm like, I am lost, right? And I just start weeping and weeping and weeping. And I walk over and I'm like, have you seen, and my parents at the time drove a station wagon, have you seen a brown station wagon? And they're like, at the beach, that's like saying today, have you seen a truck in Texas? Uh, yeah, like back then, like, yeah, there's a billion trucks. There's a billion of those cars. And their parents come out and they're like, they're like I'm, bud, you're lost. I don't know. Where is your family? And I'm like, I, don't, I was playing, I don't know. And they start walking me along, and then all of a sudden, I see my parents running towards me. And I'm just weeping undone. And then my parents come, and they scoop me up. They give me a hug, and they bring me back. And I remember that moment of feeling so alone and the joy of being found. Was I disobedient and did that cause me to be lost? 
Absolutely. Did that stop the love of my parents to run and come and find me? Absolutely not. You see, when we get lost in the cycle of sin, we aren't left alone. God is ready to reach out to us. And so I just want you to think for a moment about the cycles of sin that you get in. For some of us, it might be sexual sin. When I hang out with these people, when I stay up late at night, when I do these different things, when I get on that website, when I do this, I get locked in thinking that leads me to a place I don't want to be. And if you were to think about it for a moment, you would see that there's probably certain triggers that you can line up to say, this is when I fail. This is when I get lost. This is what pulls me off course. And, and, and often God starts with, with small little warnings, small warning lights like on the dashboard of your car. And if you ignore the lights long enough, what you'll discover is the car stops working. And that's what God does. He's like, I've given you warning lights. There's a cycle of steps that you get in. Or maybe it's your anger. Like what typically happens is you lash out at a point and you kind of stuff it for a while. Like, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be nicer. I'm so sorry I yelled at you. I didn't really mean to do that. And then you go on for a period of time and somehow that just comes out again. Like you lash out in anger again. You, you yell at that person. Then you like repent and like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'll never do that again. And then, and then things go better in your relationship and then something else triggers and then you're like off again and then apologizing. And we get locked in these same cycles of sin after sin after sin. And, and, and I think wrongly in the Christian life, some of us think that as long as we are good for a season, we get off stray, as long as we say, I'm sorry, okay, that blessing will come back. And some of us live our Christian life in that same cycle of sin. And we never, we never end up overcoming the place where we are. And what's fascinating about this section is that this, these people, they admit it. They say, you have blessed us and we have rebelled. You have blessed us and we have rebelled over and over and over again. They say, you have done right but we have done wrong. And what's so anticlimactic in, verse, in the end of this section, verse 32 to 38, is that it kind of ends as a downer. Verse 32, it says, Now therefore, O God, great and mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem to you that has come upon us, upon our kings and our fathers um, until this day. You, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. You have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly, verse 33. Our kings and our princes and our priests have not kept your commandments, even in their own kingdom, amid your great goodness that you gave them and the large riches in the land that you set before them. They did not serve you or turn from their wickedness. Behold, verse 36, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy. And it's rich yield we're giving to other kings. They rule over our bodies and our livestock. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document, and here are the names of everyone. At the end of all of this, they're like, hey, you have blessed us. You are good. We've blown it. And we're gonna sign this piece of paper. And at that moment, you're like, okay, that doesn't seem like it's enough. It kind of ends there. 
And for some of us, our church experience becomes like that type of moment where, okay, God, you're good. Yes, I've blown it. Here I am. God, you're good. Yes, I blew it. And I'm here. And we never experience the freedom that God has because we stay locked in this cycle of sin. And they even say, we're slaves today. And Jesus says, the problem, the problem, the problem, the human dilemma is that we are never going to fix ourselves. We need outside intervention. And so through this section, you see the Abrahamic covenant, the promise to Abraham. You see the Mosaic covenant. Hey, do these things. But what the nation does not have at this moment in this writing is the solution to their problem, which is the new covenant. The covenant that Jesus will bring. Jeremiah 31 predicts it. He says, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers that when I brought them out of Egypt, though I was a husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put a new law within them and I will write it on their hearts and they and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each person say, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. And then Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, he says, look, here's the cup at the Last Supper of the new covenant, the covenant that is purchased by my blood. He says we, what is needed isn't a resolution to try to do better next time. What's needed is something completely new. It's a promise that God will come and fix the broken hearts of his people. Ephesians says that we are dead in sin. We cannot fix us, but Jesus comes to forgive us our sins and to give us the spirit to empower us to live a new life. He says, there's something new that you have. And the, the, the issue is this. Do we actually believe in the promises of God? Do you believe that God will fulfill his promises? And let me tell you what, he will. In fact, all throughout this story, you see that God was faithful with the people through Abraham. He was faithful through the people of Moses. And God is faithful that if you come to Jesus Christ, you are in that line of covenant promising fulfillment, and he will fix your heart and empower you to live a new life. But do you actually believe in the promises of God? Do we actually believe in the promises of God? When my uh, oldest daughter was uh, four or five years old, she was invited to a birthday party. And the birthday party was to an ice skating rink. Now, daddy is terrible at everything moving like that right? Skating, skateboarding, ice skating, add to the list. I'm terrible at it. And so we went, and, and she's like, Daddy, you got to teach me how to ice skate. I'm like, baby, you got to teach Daddy how to ice skate. And so we, we start going around, and they actually had these walkers um, that they would allow uh, people that had no business ice skating to, to do. And so 
And so I'm like, hey, I need some help. And they're like, here, try this. And I'm like, the, the walker? I don't really know that I, and, and, I'm, and I'm like, yeah, maybe I need the walker. And, and so I, I bring it out. And at first I'm like, baby, you stand here and you hold on to the walker. Can you just hold up here? And I'll, and I'll kind of skate beside you. And we're going around and around and around. And, and, and we're able to stay up. And I'm like, okay, I'm getting pretty good at this. I'm getting pretty good at this. And then as soon as I, uh, I'm like, man, I'm getting better at this, and I let go, and I start skating on the side, and she's pushing, pushing, and as soon as I let go of that walker, I fall and eat it in front of parents and friends and anyone that has any, no cool factors, right? Like, no cool factors on that moment. And then uh, after that, she's like, Daddy, I want to go ice skating again. It was so fun. And I'm like, baby, Daddy will take you in the future. And, and I kid you not, I feel like month after month, she would say the same thing to me. Daddy, you promised. Daddy, you promised. Hey, when can we go ice skating again? Daddy, you promised. Daddy, you promised. And it wasn't because that I wanted to go ice skating that I fulfilled my promises. It was because I loved my daughter. And my love for her and the character of her dad meant that I'm going to fulfill my promise to you. And so a couple years later, we went again. <laughs> Still with the walker, right? Like, and Daddy held on to the walker the whole time this time. You have a loving dad. And Jesus is the fulfillment of every covenantal promise. And if you ever doubt the love of God, all you have to do is look at the cross of Christ. He loved you so much that he gave everything for you. He loves you deeply. And when we run from him, he is not running from us. He's saying, I am faithful even if you are faithless. I am present even if you are absent. And I will never leave you or forsake you. Henry Ward Beecher says, we, when, we have a heart, a heartily, uh, when we have heartily repented of a wrong, we should, we should let all the waves of forgetfulness roll over it and go forward unburdened to meet the future. When I was in college, um, it's when I started first walking with the Lord. And um, we went on a college ministry retreat. And on that retreat, uh, it, I didn't really know anyone, so I showed up as a complete nobody to this retreat. But I know I needed Jesus, and I needed the community of believers, and so I show up on this retreat. I'm a fifth year in college. And there were some people over on the side, just kind of like with an acoustic guitar. Uh, if you're college and a Christian, acoustic guitar is right in there, right? It's just the next thing. And, uh, and they're kind of playing songs and kind of singing together. And, and I walk over, and I'm, I'm listening to this girl sing this song that she had written. And I'm, I'm like listening to it. I'm going, this is incredible. And I, and I walk over to um, the director of college ministry, and, and everyone's kind of like stirred up around this song. Like, oh, man, this is so great. You're so great. And not only was she a good singer, but it was just really good lyrics. And, and she's, she's like singing the song. And, and at that retreat, they said, okay, Get with the band, and, and y'all sing that over us. And for the next year of time, like that 
that little song that she wrote kind of became our, our anthem as a little college ministry. And the name of the song is called Faithful. Her name is Caroline Cobb. And the start of the song starts like this. Sometimes I get overwhelmed by the thought of you. Sometimes you want me to draw close, but I forget to. But I know if I'm slow to reach out my hand, I know you'll take hold of it. Because you are faithful when I'm faithless. You are able when I'm helpless. When I stumble, take me broken, make me over, I'm whole again. You are faithful when I'm faithless. That is the God of your Bible. He is faithful to us. He is faithful to you. And so I want to lead us in a time of prayer as we close this morning. Our prayer team is going to come forward. Um, and so is our band. And, and we have a lot to pray over as a church. And our prayer team is here for, for you. If, if there is a particular sin struggle that you are caught in, we want to help you walk in freedom. If there's a particular fear that has been um, ravaging you, we want to pray for you. We also want to pray for our church and our leadership. I will always be honest with you. And I will speak the truth in love. But we need the Spirit of God to lead us just like you do. And so I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. The band is going to come up. And if you need to be prayed for, we want to pray for you in this, in this season. And so I want to start this time with this, if, if, as, the, as the band starts playing. Um, would you be willing to pray right now for our church? Just close your eyes. Pray for the, the people beside you. Pray for our elders and leaders. Would you spend time, a, a moment of, of prayer for our church community? at this time if there's any um, is there any sin struggle that you feel yourself locked in is it anger is it lust is it fear um, is it an argument you continue to have with your spouse or a friend or a family member is there, is there a, a sin situation that you find yourself locked in just lift it up to the Lord right now
Lord, we ask for your forgiveness when we have wronged you, when we have not lived fully for you. So Lord, we repent of our sin. But Lord, we don't want to be locked in the same patterns. We want to have freedom. And the freedom is found in you, Jesus Christ. That you forgive us and empower us by your spirit to live a new life. So Lord, I pray that we would come to you, Jesus, on our knees. That you would bring healing that we need, forgiveness that we need. God, you empower us to be your people so that more and more people will get to know you, Jesus Christ. And that we could walk in freedom from every sin that entangles. If you have something you want specifically prayed for, please, our prayer team is here. Rest us, we're going to close.